this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So you're looking to sell your business? My guess is you're actually not. My guess is that you'd like to know that you could sell your business down the road, but right now you're busy building it. And if that's the case, standard operating procedures can be your secret sauce. These are the documents that you need to show your employees how to do their work. And we've just developed a new ebook. You can get it at builttosell.com slash SOP. All right, so here's the deal. If you resell other people's products or services, it can be really tough to create a valuable business, right? If you think about it, why would I acquire your business if I could simply compete with you by lowering your price? If you're reselling someone else's product, you're effectively in a commoditization game and it can mean that you really don't have any value in your business. That is the situation that Mayhul Sheth found himself in, our next guest. He had margins around 20, 25%, and he was effectively just a middleman. But listen for how he remade his company. A really masterclass in getting out of the commoditization game. I'll let him explain how he did it in the industry he was in. He was supplying airline parts Again, a very commoditized space, but he did it like a master. He also did some really savvy negotiation when he went to sell his company. I'll have you listen for some of the kind of tactics he used, how he found out he had more leverage than he thought he had in the process, how he validated the acquire was legitimate and really had a genuine interest in building his company. He talked about how he got standard operating procedures to work within his company. Lots to enjoy in this wide rating interview with Mayhul Chef. Enjoy. Mayhill Sheth, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you for having me on the program. I really appreciate it. Yeah, VMS Aircraft. I'm dying to find out what this company does. Tell me about it. VMS Aircraft is a, this was or is still in a different form, a distributor of consumables for the aircraft. So what happens is uh, you need, when you take your car to the mechanic, of course, you've got to do your oil change and all, but when you take a plane into a big hangar and do a C or D check, a lot of times you change the seats, you change the windows, you add polysulfide sealants. Even today you see the golf clubs, they're full of those resin systems and pre-pregs and so on. All of that stuff we distributed. So that's what VMS Aircraft did. We did it for commercial and the military. So your customers were the airlines and the military? Military, airlines, third-party aircraft maintenance facilities, because sometimes airlines do do not do their own in-house heavy maintenance. Okay. Also satellite builders and actually OEMs, people who make aircraft. Okay, so why did why wouldn't the airlines and the OEMs just buy the stuff direct from the manufacturer? Why do they need a mailman? They buy from the manufacturer when they make aircraft and they have very strong 
a buying power and guaranteed production quantities and so on. When they're doing third party maintenance and one day they may have United Airlines in their hangar and one day they may have American and those two companies use a whole different set of products and they're not sure exactly how much sealant they're going to need and they can't wait for a manufacturer's lead time because every day that the plane is late getting out of the hangar costs them $50,000 a day. So they rely on a distributor network stocking that material to get it to their facility when they need it. Got it. And so your, <laughs> so your value proposition was you've got the inventory and you can That's get it. it to the airline quickly. That's got to cost you a truckload to to keep all that inventory somewhere. Well, how did you kind of finance all that inventory? Did you literally have it in a warehouse somewhere? Yeah, we had our own warehouse. Initially, of course, we used other people's warehouse. We rented space. But in the end, uh, we had bought our own building and held the inventory. Now, by the way, you don't always have everything in inventory, okay? There's other reasons that these airlines use you. One is you understand what they need. You understand the technical requirements and the paperwork. Because sometimes in this business, paperwork's more important than their product. When I mean paperwork, I mean batch number, lot number, all the things, because you're talking about aircraft. So they're FAA inspectors on site, and they have to make sure that all of the certifications flow down from the manufacturer. So as a distributor, you'd have other requirements like you would be ISO 9000 or you would have other requirements. The other thing is you're always bringing them new products. Your manufacturer is giving you new products. You're staying ahead of the technology that's out there. You're offering them new things. And so they rely on you at the end. It comes down to this. You're a one-stop shop, not only for the product, but for where to get other types of products and you understand the market. So that's what they pay you for. That was the original value proposition in the beginning. How did that one-stop shop value prop, <laughs> sad as a rhyme, how did that evolve over time? Because again, the Amazonification of the world, everything's available 24-7 now. It's a click away I'm assuming United Airlines wants seat covers for their 737s. They don't have to go through a distributor. They could go through to the direct. Like, did that, I guess where I'm getting at is, did that one-stop shop value proposition, did you feel that, that weakening over time? Absolutely. As Absolutely. So that's how you started and get people's interest. But it can't sustain, especially for a, for a uh, a smaller organization uh, because the big guys get bigger in that, like you're talking about Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. So what did we do? Then you have to look for specialized services that you can provide. Here's what we did. We got ourselves into advanced materials, like I was telling you, uh, bonding materials, pre-preg, film adhesive. Those have much 
difficult requirements for distributor because you have to have special freezers. You have to have special monitors. You have to ship them in specialized boxes that are dry ice capable. So now you're starting to add some values that the one-stop shop guys don't have. Then you have to have a clean room. 100,000 particle, uh, particle clean room to, to have positive airflow to handle those materials so dust doesn't settle on them. So you have to have specialized extraction systems. Then we looked at, okay, now we should start repackaging. Manufacturer puts something in a five-gallon pail. United Airlines, to your example, needs a 100-gram tube to get in a very tight spot. They can get the five-gallon pail from anywhere. Where do they get the 100-gram tube? Well, we opened a repackaging facility, which is another level because you need additional certifications for that and machines that know how to repackage a very nasty type of chemicals. So to answer your question, you hit it right on the head. You start as the one-stop shop. You bring the customers in and over time as that business gets more difficult you go into very niche services that not many people can do and that's how you sustain your value and how did your thank you for that how did your margin evolve your gross margin or your profit margin for that matter as you went into these advanced materials and repackaging business models well, I'll give you an example. In, in aerospace chemicals distribution, let's go back to the one-stop shop. At one time, when I first started, those margins were upward of about 30%. Gross margin, gross profit. Gross margin, margin gross yeah. margin. Over time, and as of today, the market runs on an average of anywhere from about 22 to 23%. Skinny. Yes, very skinny. Okay. That doesn't include all your costs and your employees and everything else. That's right? just gross margin. Yeah. You haven't wrote your rent check yet. 23%. You cannot sustain as a small business in that, right? Uh, so, what do we do with, to answer your question with the advanced materials? Once we were able to repackage it in smaller quantities and rebag and reseal it and pull it out of the freezer and put it in that dry ice box, the margin popped back up 60 to 70%, okay? Nice. Because you're, yes, you're selling them a smaller roll. You have risk of it sitting in the freezer. Can you sell it to someone else? But when that product goes out the door, it's going out at 60 to 70%, not 20, 23%. So that right there, you, you hit the nail on the proverbial head. That's awesome. What about recurring revenue? Did you have any recurring revenue? I know you had consumables, so it was reoccurring. You're never sure when United or Southwest is going to call, but you know they're going to call because they run out of the stuff. Did you have any, any subscription-based or, or recurring revenue in the model? Absolutely, because once you start working with military, a lot of this stuff goes under contract. Mm. So they have delivery schedules and when they need it. Now you would say, ask me a question. Well, if the military can put it under contract and pre predict their quantities, why wouldn't they go back to manufacture and buy it? If you were going to ask that, that's a great question. The answer is, is because military needs to use small business 
as set asides to uh. fulfill their government quotas. So military that goes direct to manufacturers is not a good look for the U.S. military. They need to get they need to get money out of the government by saying they support small business horsepower. So that's how we were able to then tap into scheduled government contracts. And by the way, um, airlines as well, like United, sign those contracts as well. You say, why do they sign a contract? They can go out and look for what they need. Well, they also want to squeeze the margins and the price, and they don't want to face the manufacturer's price increases. Because if a manufacturer is sole source on a product as approved by Airbus or Boeing, they could squeeze the airline by keep raising their prices. Airline wants to lock in their price and sustain their costs with their suppliers over a period of time. So they'll put that on distributors and then they'll sign contracts as well. Got it. A lot of this added value, the advanced materials, the repackaging, in particular, I'm, I'm thinking of, of, of how you treated some of these materials where contamination could have catastrophic effect, right? How did you, I'm, I'm particularly interested in how you got your employees to follow your processes. I mean, did you create, uh, we've talked a lot on this show about standard operating procedures so that employees have sort of instructions for how to handle some of these advanced materials. Did you have any of these sort of standard operating procedures or systems or processes in your business? Oh, it's all about process. And let me tell you who was a great driver for these advanced materials and the process, Boeing Company. Now you say, what is Boeing makes airplanes? Why are they involved in that? Well, it used to be if you wanted to be a vendor to Boeing, which by the way, wasn't our main business, but if you wanted to be a vendor to Boeing, they would have to come out, right? And they'd have to audit your facility, look at your standard operating procedure and your processes and so on. Well, Boeing had a lot of vendors and they were paying a lot of money to stay in hotels, send auditors out for all these audits, right? So what did they do? They got smart. They helped partner a standard called NADCAP. Sorry, okay. say again, NADCAP? NADCAP, right. So it's a national association. I don't know. I don't know the exact acronym to be a little bit embarrassed stands okay. for. I got, but NADCAP. So what they would do is they would go to one organization. Let's call that NADCAP, Boeing. And they would say, here's what we want to see from our vendors. Now, NADCAP, you, the vendor would call NADCAP and pay NADCAP to come out and do the audit. So basically, Boeing then subcontracts NADCAP, tells them these are the standards we want to see. Then NADCAP comes out and audits you, or it's actually called AS9100, okay? So NADCAP and AS9100. The AS9100 standard, if you look that up, that's Boeing basically telling a, another organization that these are the standards we want met. And now, that manufacturer of your product, Boeing tells them, don't sell it to that distributor unless they meet these standards. So then the manufacturer sends out a person at, to your site to say, 
before we give you these advanced materials, will you meet NADCAP? Will you meet AS9100? Will you meet these standards? So my That's question, the baseline. Okay. My question, Mayhola, and I think a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people listening to this are, that know nothing about the airline business, but they do have employees who they want to get to follow a system. And in many cases, the stakes are lower than yours. Your, if your employees didn't follow the AS9100 processes, you risk losing Boeing as you know, a partner. So how did you get your employees to follow the processes, the instructions? So what you do is you hire a strong quality manager. This is what who- you did. That's what I did. You hire a quality manager. Your quality manager looks at all the standards issued by the authorities we just talked about. Then your quality manager and your team of whatever it is, whether it's customer service related, warehouse related, trains their employees or your employees, in this case, my employees, in all of the processes that need to be followed. We got all the external training done. For example, our company shipped a very large amount of hazardous material per day. One error in shipping hazardous material was a $25,000 fine with the DOT and FAA. No questions asked, even if you admit to the mistake. So as an owner, you can see that When you hire someone, you have to get them trained. So what did we do? We went out and found, in our case, we found Steve Hunt from Shipmates, who actually wrote some of the regulations for the Coast Guard and works with big companies. We actually brought him into a small company our size to work with every one of our uh, warehouse employees and get them trained on the regulations and how to double check to make sure that you didn't ship a corrosive as a flammable or a flammable as a corrosive and you labeled everything properly. Now, the co- one more thing, the consequence of that would be that we'd have an internal corrective action system because when you hire the quality manager, you have a quality system that tracks your employees' performance. And if they make a mistake, there's a corrective action written. The corrective action then drills down to why was it made? Was it carelessness? Was it lack of training? What it was? So we had a lot of systems in place to make sure that all of these quality requirements were supported. Okay. So it, it involves some a fairly hands-on training and the corrective action was issued when someone had made a mistake. So that it was clear it was on their file and you, you, you had a form away. But again, I want to drill down further on this. So a lot of people listening would be like, yeah, I've got a process, but you know, it's sitting in a Microsoft word document and nobody looks at it. I wrote it three years ago. I put it in a Dropbox and, and nobody follows the, the, the process that I, that I created. And so the process never gets followed because some employees ignore it. Other employees don't um, don't know where it is or can't find it when they need it. Like, what was your technique to ensure that these very high stakes processes were followed to the T? Just so fire an employee if they didn't if they didn't do it right. Right. Or- so we well we would we have a quality manager that would go out and do. Um, 
audits, unannounced audits okay. to look at what's going on, what exactly is being done, do double checks, spot checks on what's going on uh, with the paperwork. We would go out to the warehouse and take, do a sample because the whole system flows down. You know that every year you're going to have an auditor from a that audits for AS9120, a third-party auditor, come to your side. And the first thing they're going to do is show me 10 invoices. Show me 10 purchase orders. Show me the flow down. Show me, give me a, show me the whole stream of how this works from cradle to grave from when you receive product to ship it out. So we would do the same thing. Internally, we would do audits every quarter. Okay, show me what you've done here. Show me how you received that. Show me that it matched. I mean, so we have, we would have to keep on that because you're right. The minute you take the foot off that gas pedal, you're in trouble. Got it. I love this. How big did you get this business VMS before you decided to sell it, either in terms of revenue or number of employees or just some proxy for size? I started it in my parents' basement before I fled out here to California and New Jersey with $25,000. I started this thing with $25,000. At the height of our sales was $8 million. Wow. So I took it from 25,000 uh, investment with no sales to $8 million in gross sales. Uh, that's as far as I got, a little bit over $8 million uh, before I sold it. What triggered you to want to sell? Well, first of all, we didn't advertise this to sell it. A, a company that was looking for a company like us found us. I'll tell you a little bit about that story. What's interesting there. We were working with uh, 3M, which is one of our main business partners that we distribute for. And that company some of these still advanced does materials, the advanced materials, and, the, yeah. and also some consumables, tapes, and so on. Remember, 3M is the inventor of the scotch tape sure, and sure, so sure, on and sure. so forth, right? So 3M contacted me as one of their leading channel partners and says, we've got a company that, can, that we're partnering with that can add our catalog to your web, website for an online shopping catalog and so on and, and so on. So we looked, we looked into it and found out that they were charging us about twenty-eight dollars to $30,000 to put this to be able to have online shopping and put a cart on and so on. This third-party company, not 3M. This third, not 3M, this recommended by 3M third-party company. And um, we felt it was a little bit expensive. And we, you know, at that time, we had a lot of expenses in supporting the cash flow of the business. But we said, you know what, we have to do this. So long story short, we invested that $30,000. We took our website to a different level than it was before, which was kind of an in-house man, handmade website. Mm -hmm. And when the, the company that bought us was looking around and they came to our website, their target, John, their target was to buy a 10 to $20 million company. I found this out later. 
we were an $8 million company, so we did not even fit their target range. But when they saw the website, the, the gentleman that was based in the U.S. for this French company who was tasked at looking around in the U.S. to see who's available, when they saw our website, they said, hey, this looks like a 15 to $20 million company because we had just got the site done. And that's how they made the initial contact. Now, what drove them to our website? In Europe, they were a big 3M and still are a distributor in the industrial space, tapes and adhesives. In the US, they already bought a company in Milwaukee that was into tapes and adhesives, but they really wanted a West Coast aerospace company that had those advanced materials with that 60% margin we talked about and not necessarily all 22 to 23%. So they looked at our site, saw that we distributed those advanced materials for 3M Aerospace, which was clear on the website, and that's how they found us. And then the rest is history. I love this. So it's your, it's the front door of the world. We always think about our websites as how our customers find us, but equally acquirers are going to find us. And before they ever pick up the phone and call you, they're going to go to your website. And I love the fact that you highlighted this. So the, the site that you invested in the 30 grand, if I'm if I'm mischaracterizing this, correct me, but it, it took your website from kind of brochureware, a little bit mom and pop looking to pretty slick, pretty sophisticated. And all of a sudden you're punching above your weight when it comes to your website. John, this thing moves so fast that you're absolutely right. So in 2016, it looked pretty slick. And today they're trying to redo it in-house in France, saying it's outdated. It looks, it looks like a dinosaur because all the competitors have gotten shopping carts and stuff that are way more advanced than this site. But you're right. In 2016, it did what it was supposed to do. Got it. And did you so okay? So you get the slick websites. Um you then what happened? The, the the French company proactively approached you about acquiring you, or what? Like what triggered you to have to start having this conversation? So the gentleman that found the website, he had already worked for that organization in France and in the U.S. for about four years, and he was tasked with finding the company, or one of the people tasked. He called me, and he said, "Our." myself. And also at that time, the person that they had bought the other division I mentioned in Milwaukee would like to come out and see you. We're doing a tour of the West Coast on prospective companies that we are in interested in buying. And you're through your website, you're on our list. Do you mind if we come out and have a look? So those two gentlemen arrived in my conference room a couple of months after. Okay, before we get to the conference room, you're on the phone. What was your reaction to this guy's cold call? I think I was prepared for it because you asked me an interesting question. Like, did you prep the business for sale or how did someone find you? I already had it in my mind that this business needed to be sold at a certain time. And the reason I had that in my mind is 
Remember we talked about it earlier, bigger guys getting bigger on these narrow margin businesses like Amazon and guys that are working at 23% at 8 million in sales with all their overhead gasping for air. So we weren't gasping for air exactly at that time, but ever since 2008, 9, and 10, when the market went down and the banks tightened their credit lending policies and the the ability to grow your business. And what I saw was that trend that smaller companies were going to have a hard time raising that kind of capital, especially if they're working at those margins. So to answer your question, I had it in my mind that this business would be benefit of tying our uh, cart to a more stronger horse. Uh, and when that guy called, I guess I was mentally prepared for it. And before he called, you had made this, you, you'd come to the realization that sooner or later, it would make sense to sell. Did, did you have, or what was your sense of what your business might be worth? Um, did you have a, a sense like on a multiple of EBITDA or a multiple of whatever revenue that, did you have a kind of an inkling of what you thought was fair or a range of what you thought, you know, a business like yours might sell to? Or I thought six to eight kind of was going to be fair. It's a lot, but you have to re remember getting, let's get back to that advanced materials thing. If, if you're a one-stop shop and that's all you are, six to eight is not going to be in range. But now that you add those niche services and those hazardous shipping and the fear of the 25,000 fine and everything you've put into that business, you're thinking, okay, a multiple of eight is a good target to have. I mean, when I talk to some people, because a couple of business brokers that I never signed with came and said, hey, we'd love to help you out. Uh, and uh, we think a eight is a kind of a target. So for this kind of business. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you're thinking somewhere in the six to eight range felt right. The French company says, let's come and see. So, so you agreed to let him come to the conference right. room and, and what take me inside the conference room. What was that conversation like? The initial conversation is, okay, everything um, looks good. We're interested. It was just those two guys, right, that came. But those two guys were really scouts. Like if you talk in football terms, scouts. The main boss was in France, and they were supposed to report back to the boss who traveled to the U.S. a lot, and they were supposed to tell him, yes, this is one you want to meet. And so what they did is they went back to the mothership and got the big boss interested in meeting with me. Got it. Got it. Were you trying to sell them, the scouts? You know, at, the, at that time, I wasn't trying to, I didn't want to seem so desperate, like I'm desperate to sell this business. I don't think that bodes well. I was showing them that I'm strong. I know what I'm doing. I do represent 3M. I know you're looking for a 3M distributor. I've got a strong brand. I've got a strong customer base. I've got advanced materials. I was looking at it from more of that perspective of showing a strong hand. Were uh, you also concerned at all about revealing too much confidential information? Because presumably they could have set up shop to compete with you. Absolutely. I was really concerned about that. And of course, you uh, 
uh, before then you talk. What they did is later on, they hired a, they used a company in New York that was a, uh, a company they used to buy companies. And then that's the company that then, if they're interested, sends you the non-disclosure agreement. And, and so then other measures of safety and security come into play, which by the way, I found out later, those don't really work too well either. If they don't buy you, somehow information gets out anyway, you know, uh, to, to these kind of companies. So there was a risk that I was really worried about. That was a legitimate concern. And what did you do to minimize that risk? I think I delivered information. Uh, what's the word? Not exactly slowly, but a deliberate, deliberate process of delivering information. I didn't walk into the first meeting with the owner when he came from France and said, here's all my customers, here's all my suppliers, here's this, got a feeling. And I think what happened is the owner and I, which we still do today, really hit it off and not, right in our first meeting, looking into his eyes, I felt a sense of comfort and trust. And I feel like I know how to read the quarterback. That's one of my positives in life that I read people pretty well. And the first time I met him, I felt a sense of these people are a much bigger business. They're into so many businesses. They're not there to find out one customer that they can steal from you. I never got that feeling. They're in to establish something in the United States with the right partner. And I, once you get that feeling and then you sign the NDA and then you talk a little bit more, you start to disclose more and more information at the time. Yeah. And to be clear, it was a mutual NDA, right? You were revealing right. to them and they were revealing to you. Absolutely. So you had to honor that, I'm assuming. Got it. Okay. So where does it go from there? So the big boss flies over from France, I'm assuming. Yeah, and that was a very uh, surreal experience because I actually had to go to Nashville for some something personal on that week that he was flying over. And the I mentioned to you there were two gentlemen, the the young guy from France who called me yeah, the and then the, right, the scout and the other scout was the comp the owner of the company they bought in Milwaukee. So that owner of the company they bought in Milwaukee calls me up and he says, our boss uh, in France is flying over. He can meet you in New York or Atlanta. Why is that? Well, because I found out later, those are hubs that Air France flies out of. And he wanted an easy way to meet me at sure. one of those hubs because he was looking at other acquisitions. He was pressed for time. I said, I'm sorry, I can't meet him in New York or Atlanta. I'm sorry to say, but I have to go to Nashville. He said, oh, you're going to Nashville? He says he was actually flying to Nashville because they were also looking at buying some other tape company. But he didn't want to tell you Nashville because nobody meets in Nashville. So he wanted to give you the hubs that he was flying out of, which was New York and Atlanta. <laughs> and then the other thing that happened is he his term kind of came to an end 
he, I don't know all the details and I don't want to, but he had a little falling out within the organization. So at the last minute, he told the owner he's not going to show up in Nashville. Wait, the, the Milwaukee guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so he called me up and said, look, I'm kind of done. I'm not going there, but here's the owner's contact. If you want contact him and work it out yourself. So it was a little bit abrupt. I was confused, but I was on it, I called the owner who was in France. I said, I, your guy, that's between you guys, is telling me he's not coming, but I'm going to be in Nashville. I don't know if he told you. We had breakfast at the hotel he was staying at in Nashville, and the rest is history, you know? So, Did it give you pause that the Milwaukee guy, because Milwaukee guy was someone in your shoes. He was a business owner that had sold to the company in France. Were, what did that due to your level of confidence that this company in France was legit? You know what? Uh, it would have done a lot because then you start asking your questions like, why aren't they sustainable? Why isn't it working out? The great thing is it happens so fast. I mean, we're supposed to meet, let's say, on a Friday in Nashville. And here on Wednesday, he's calling and saying, by the way, I won't be there. Here's the owner's phone number. You can meet him direct and you're already on your way there. And so you really didn't, didn't have time to to go through your mind of what went wrong there and why and what. And so I reached the owner. By the time I got there, I was in a different world. I had already connected with him and he understood me, it seemed, and I understood him and we had instant chemistry. So I never really addressed that idea till later what happened there. So, uh, got it. So take us take us inside the meeting in Nashville. What was what was that like when you met with the the big boss from France? Uh, you know, he wanted to see a level of sincerity. He wanted to see, you know, whether I was humble or not, whether I was arrogant in my approach to things like what did he oh, do? What did he do or say that led you to believe he wanted to see how arrogant or humble you were? That's a strange thing to say. I've never heard someone say that before. Well, I mean, he would just uh, ask some, just some very simple questions, you know, like he wasn't asking, he was just like, you know, how do you do this? Or how do you deal with this being as a smaller company? Let's say like, he didn't say like, Oh, okay. You're, you're a big executive and uh, you know, all these people you have, he was more looking at you as like the entrepreneur and how you go through the minefields of this business on us as a, as on a smaller scale. And I think you, you got to appreciate that. Um, and the other thing that you appreciated from him, he owned a $150 million company, but he started that with more money, more investors and all, but still on a fairly smaller scale and built it up over, I think it was 20 years at that time. So slowly, slowly putting one more log on the fire. So you got to see that he was also a deal maker, entrepreneur type guy. He wasn't a hard operations numbers guy. He was a project guy. He knew who you were. And he was that over there. And you, so you kind of started to understand each other quickly. Got it. Got it. You mentioned you read people well, and you can read the quarterback. It's one of your superpowers. So what 
did, what gave you, like, what sort of things did this French executive say or do that led you to believe he was legitimate and, and worth doing business with? Uh, one of the things that he said was quite interesting was the way we want to operate is like this. We don't want to be a French company doing business in the U.S. We want to be a French company that owns a U.S. company who's doing business in the U.S. And that U.S. company, we want them to be local. His always thing was, we're global, but we're first local. We're global, but we're first local. And the idea, and he always carried that through. When I worked for him, and I'm still working for that organization, but not from him anymore, when four years I worked for him under two contracts, a lot of times he would say, look, I don't know if that's the right way you're looking at this decision, but guess what? It's your decision. It's a local decision. It's not a global decision. So he always kept to that. And I sensed that from the first time he met it, that he was going to empower his people. And usually when these companies are bought, they come in, they take the assets, they buy the company, they take the product line, they take the customer base, and then they want to throw you out as fast as possible and then bring in their own people once the honeymoon's over. But one, the second time he came to my office, we were sitting there and he was just listening to me talk to some of the employees and do some stuff and this. And he looked at me and he said, it's going to work. And I said, uh, what are you talking about? What do you mean it's going to work? He says this, it's going to work. Because I think he saw that he liked. And the one thing he said to me, and then he would get on me for a lot of things, but the one compliment that he gave me, he said that day, he said, I know one thing. When I walk out of this office and go back to France, I never have to worry what's going on there. I know that you're running things and it's, it's under control. Like I don't have to worry like, uh, you know, like are the kids going to play when the boss is away type of thing. He never felt that with me getting back to some of the other companies they bought without naming the people that came out later. They worried about when he went, who was on the golf course and not working with me. He never had that. Okay. I want to get into how he structured your agreement so that he felt confident in that. But before we go there, I'd love to know at what point in this process does the prospect of money come up? Like when you're in Nashville, does he put a number on the table? Does he ask you to put a number on the table? No, Where, no. That? no, he says, I'm busy in France till the rest of the year. Let's talk till next year. We talk next year. Um, he says, before we talk money, let's have our New York guy do a value, you know, valuation. Um, course, they didn't want to go into that unless they knew ex had some idea of what I want. And of course, I, I said, I'm looking for somewhere, you know, in that range we talked about that eight EBITDA range. And he says, okay, well, that's something we can talk about. But of course, we have to see are the inventory levels right? 
are things customer base, what you say it is, and so on. So then the NDA signed. They hire the New York firm. The funny story about that is they said, we want to do very light due diligence, very light. We're not going to spend a lot of money on due diligence for a company this size. Well, the next thing I know, they go out and hire Moss Adams. (laughs) The Moss Adams, a big firm, brings in a person, a junior who's sitting in China to do the job. And let me tell you something. They even find out what color color toothbrush you have. I mean, <laughs> I said to I said to the owner later, if you call this light due diligence, I'd hate to find out what they call heavy. You know. <laughs> awesome. But by so, then, you know, we had struck a rapport. And so some of the things that didn't add up, quite frankly, like inventory wasn't exact to what their account was and all. They kind of overlooked a few things because they were so deep by that time into our relationship. So anyway. Okay. So yeah. so he kind of gets out of you that you're looking for eight times EBITDA. And and he kind of acknowledges that and says, okay, but before I can commit to that, I'm going to send in the New York firm. So the New York guys are the MA firm, the buy side MA firm. They I, like, okay, we're going to get a evaluation done and do some light due diligence. They go away. At, that point at what point does the specter of money come up again at some point i'm assuming you got a letter of intent or or something right we had a letter of intent uh they they had a a, a rough number on the offer uh we accepted that offer but of course that offer is always contingent on the resolution of the due diligence which was going to the last minute so what was the offer for, if you don't mind me asking? Like, It, it was program. eight times. Uh, it was uh, not eight. I think if, uh, let me see here, it was about 7.4 times EBITDA. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so you were looking for eight, came back at 7.4. So what happens next? What happens next is we agree to everything in principle, but time was getting tight because he was traveling back to the U.S. So due diligence didn't get finished as fast as we thought. So he was coming to strike a deal with the M&A firm. And he brought back the original guy, the first guy that found me. And they came and sat across the table. And of course, the day before they sat across the table, due diligence gets done. And of course, they find their report and some discrepancies and all. And I'm like, look, you guys are sitting right there. I'm not signing a deal for less than this. And I'll tell you one more interesting thing that helped me. I was part of SCORE, a CEO group of of retired executives. I'm not retired, but they had a CEO group that I was in. So the, the, uh, the, Moss Adams was hammering on uh, the cash flow that was in the bank. So I talked to the CEO group guys privately about it, right? And they said, here's what you do. It's not what's in the bank today because money comes in and out. You buy material, whatever. You should say to the ownership, you want the cash flow number based on how much was in the bank over a year period. I never thought of that. 
Well, that's why you're in a CEO group. They actually came at the last minute with a great piece of advice. So when I'm sitting across from the owner and his M&A firm and they're like, well, yeah, but the cash is not in the bank the way it was supposed to be. I pull out a bank slip for one year. I total the whole thing up on a piece of paper. I write it and I hand it to him. And I said, look, this is the EBITDA I'm taking from the deal. And here's the cash flow that matches it over a year period. And I basically said, I, I talked to my wife, you know, it's like, oh, you're going to take this job. Well, I got to check with my wife first. I talked to my wife and we can't go any lower. I'll go back in my office. You guys sit here in the conference room and talk it over and let me know if we have a deal. And the rest was history. That's how the deal got struck. So I want to make sure I understand the, the advice you got from your CEO group. So the 7.4 times EBITDA was never in question. It was what is the balance? The bank the, balance. In the, the time bank. of the transaction. When you right. hand the keys over to them, right. you have to leave 100 grand in the bank or 500 grand in the bank, right. a million dollars in the bank. And so how, how, so you averaged the average daily deposit in the bank to try to- Right, understand. yeah. No, let me, let me clarify this. There was no exact amount we had to leave in the bank. They were willing to take it over as what it was. But when they looked at the bank balance during the due diligence, the number of the amount of cash they saw wasn't to their liking uh, to sustain the operations of the company. So they have to put more money into it. Right. And I said, well, is not to your liking based on what you're seeing from last month's statement. But last month could have been tight because we bought so much stuff and the inventory hasn't shipped out yet. So here's my idea. Let's take the last 12 months and average that daily balance over the last 12 months and say, this is how much money on average. Now, who knew if that's the right formula? I came up with it and they bought it. That's all I know. <laughs> so you, you, okay, got it. That's helpful clarification. Thank you. So you go and say, look, 7.4 is it. I'm going to go back into my conference. You, you guys decide. Uh, first of all, had you actually spoken to your wife and was 7.4 your bottom line or was that just a line? Yeah, no, I had spoken to her and we really felt that this, that we could get this offer. And I think what you, you realize, you feel that there's a trust that's been developed. You feel that they've gone through a process. It's not cheap to fly these M&A people out here and not just the airline fare, but how much they must be charging them a day for all this. I'm sure paying Moss Adams isn't cheap to do due diligence. All of that stuff, we really, and then well, who else are they going to buy? They walk away. They don't have a 3M aerospace distributor they're going to buy. So when all that happens, I really felt that at that point we were holding the cards. And that's why I wasn't going to waver from that number. Yeah, because well said. So clearly, the more they invested in the deal, the more you realized you had some leverage as well. Yes, sir. Great insight for sure. So what happened? Did, did you leave the room and did they come back in minutes later? Like how long did it take? I, I leave the room and then 
I brought my CPA there and the owner was slapping the CPA from a mental point of view upside down. He's like, Jay, that number can't be right. No way that's right. Where are you getting that number, Jay? And Jay's like, that's the number. That's what we show. Jay, that can't be the number. Let me see that report again and again. And this dragged on. And at the end of the day, he said, okay. And we went to dinner, but we never signed the paper. The paper was supposed to be signed was, was because he said he has to go back to France. It was late at night and over the weekend, get the buy-in from his minor partners and so on. So we, it's funny on Monday morning, we had our third party HR subcontractor to come in and some other, all these outside sales reps, because we were supposed to announce the deal on a Monday at 10 o'clock at nine 45, he's still sitting in my office, just him and I, and he's going, you know, I talked to my partners and they're saying that some of these numbers didn't exactly add up in their mind and this and this. And I looked at him and I said, all those people are sitting in the conference room. Some have come from out of town, the outside sales reps, and all they're waiting for is the announcement. I, I think we're done, don't you? You know. <laughs> Finally, he gave up. He said, boy, you're tough. Signed the paper. We both walked into the conference room. And to everyone surprised, I introduced him as the new owner of VMS Aircraft. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Nothing like having a room full of people to hold uh, their feet to the fire. Yeah, <laughs> what was, how did you deal with, because clearly he wanted a French company with doing business in the U.S. or a U.S. I can't remember what exactly you said, but effectively he didn't want you to leave. Presumably he wanted you to stay. So how did he ensure that you would stay? Was it, was it an earn out or did you sign an employment agreement? Uh, or how did that work? They gave us some incentive for performance, but it was minor. The real thing was they gave us a two-year contract, uh, which you could leave, but you knew they had to pay you for two years. They also put a five-year uh, non-compete clause in there. Now, to be to be actually frank, California, the state of California, uh, has had very tough enforcement of those kind of clauses. They've been declared that they don't stick. Okay, but these companies that are international and national still get you to sign one. And I also felt, even though I can turn California law against them and say, oh, okay, uh, that's not me. I mean, if I say that I'm going to sign a deal that I'm not going to compete with you for five years and you want me to sign a two-year contract that I'm going to be here and that you're going to pay me no matter what, I'm going to stay there the whole two years. Okay. How did it, how did it impact your motivation? At first it raised the motivation a lot because now you're getting more cash that you didn't have. You're also getting product lines from Europe that they have that you may be able to apply to your organization. You're, you're wanting that the mothership and their power to lift you up. So at first you're very motivated and then they're flying you instead of economy business class to Europe to be to the Paris air show and consult with them. So 
at the beginning, you're very, very motivated. Over time, it gets harder because you also, over time, then they see where they feel you're strong and they think you're not. And so they put other people in positions where they felt that, you know, you're not as strong. They kind of limit you to what they like about you. That doesn't happen at the beginning. That happens over time. And then after four or five years, you still work there. Then you have to work there accepting that it's not your company. There's other people involved. It's a different organization. Do you fit in that organization? How can you fit in that organization? What's your value? The first day you feel like, wow, I've I've tied my cart to a much more powerful horse and we're off to the races. Yeah. Well said for sure. Did you buy yourself any trophy or memento for marking the achievement of selling your company? It's funny you say that. Uh, I, 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 I had two Acura MDXs. My wife had one and I had one. And one thing I said was I'd never go to a car show. I have no interest in a car show. I think it's a total waste of time. Well, one of our friends, it was during Christmas. This was around eight, seven, eight years ago, said, it's Christmas time. You're off for a couple of days. San Diego has a big car show. Just come. I said, no, I'm not interested. No, just come. So anyway, I end up at the San Diego car show. Biggest mistake you'll ever make. You're walking by and I saw that Cadillac Escalade and I walked up to it and these railing things came out from the bottom. I never seen anything like that. Like these little wings, like airplane wings come out. So I step on this thing and it's, and you get in and you feel like you're a king of the world. Like you're sitting in this big car and you're in a Cadillac and, uh, you know, after I sold the company, I had a lot of expenses to pay. So it's not like I went right out and bought an Escalade. But a couple of years later, I did. And it's sitting in my driveway. It's probably beyond my overall level of affordability. I don't care. I mean, every time I sit in that, see, when I said my Acura, I like my Acura. But it didn't mean anything except it was a nice car. You know, and it did its job, right? Yeah. It held my golf clubs. It's so funny. Every time I go to my driveway and I get in my car, whether I'm going somewhere, when I, it's a weird story, but when I get in my car and I sit in that Escalade and those wings come out, there's a certain sense of, um, I don't know. It's just certain sense of accomplishment. Like, you know, you, you sold your business and you got yourself this car and what that means to you and so on. I mean, that's, I'm not going to lie about it. I mean, that's, it's, it's a great feeling. I love it. I think everybody should have some celebratory gift that they give themselves to mark the process. Cause it's a huge achievement. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's a good idea to have something to, uh, to look back upon, even if it's something, you know, as materialistic as some would say a car is, I, I think it's great that you've got something that reminds you every day you get in it, that you had, 
a great success. It, it's so not it's not the car. It's not like, oh, I have an Escalade. You have an Acura. That means nothing. That's not me. That's not my personality. I don't get into buying expensive things because I like those wings and that wheels and I bought it. It's more about when you get in that car, you know that you sold Encyclopedia Britannica on the side on weekends while your wife was crying and you only had one car because you blew the other one up when you came from New Jersey. You know that you were making $400 selling a, a lady in her bathrobe Encyclopedia Britannica on a hundred degrees in Chula Vista, California to keep your business going or delivering food. Everything that you put into that, the horsepower, when you sit in the car, that brings you back to all of that. That's what it's about. I love it. I love it. So tell us where now you and I first met through uh, horsepower, small business horsepower. Is that right? Your assistant found us. She had listened yeah, yeah, to yeah. our podcast. Haley had listened to my podcast, which I do to give back to the small business community. Our podcast is a two 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 types of stories. One, it's people building businesses from scratch to fruition. And the second, which is what I brought you on the program for, is technical type of information. How do you sell it once you build it, as an example, right? Or how do you network or specific things? So we started it more with your feel-good stories of how did you build it from A to Z? And now we've gone into a balance of that and what specifically did you do or, you know, how do you net, how could you network or how could you do this? But it's about, and it's also interviewing some company people that have worked for large companies who have helped. Like I've had people from manufacturers on the program who helped contribute to building a small business. Anyway, programs called Small Business Horsepower. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify. We host it on Podbean. Or if you can't find it in any of those places, you can go on our website that we launched in conjunction with that, which is called smallbusinesshorsepower.com. Fantastic. And of course, we'll put links to that at Built to Sell com as well. Mayhill, this was fun. Thanks for doing it. Again, John, I really appreciate you having me on the program. It was just so much fun to be with you and thank you for everything. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. 
If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.